This episode of the Inside Oz podcast is brought to you by Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Available now on Spotify, Apple Music, and all major streaming platforms. Hi, this is Catherine Irby, and you're listening to the Inside Oz podcast. not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three disses. Disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. If he's a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common. Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Pride. Pride is the common thing. See, we are all of us back there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Just before we get going with this episode, I just wanted to say that if you're new to the podcast, then welcome to the show, and you can catch up with every episode that we've done so far on all the major podcasting platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, and many more. And I'll give you more info on that at the end of the episode. Subscribe to the feed so that you never miss an episode, and you can also find all the updates and news on the podcast on social media by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast on both Instagram and Twitter, where you can also submit any questions that you might have about the show, or anything else in general. So today we're going to be looking back at Series 4, Episode 4, Works of Mercy. Holding an 8.6 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana with additional writing by Sunil Nair and Bradford Winters, with Sean Weitzel in the role of executive story editor. The episode was directed by Adam Bernstein, back for the first time since the Series 4 opener, and directing his third episode of the show overall. The episode was originally broadcast on August 2nd, 2000, a day on which the Republican Party officially awarded Texas Governor George W. Bush their presidential nomination for the 2000 US presidential election at their convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, A jury in San Francisco ruled in favour of 17 bakery workers at the Interstate Brands Corporation in a case against racial discrimination, each being awarded a little over $7 million. While in the music charts, NSYNC sat atop the US Billboard chart with It's Gonna Be Me, the first and only number one on the overall chart. While in the UK, a reworked version of We Will Rock You by UK boy band 5 and original artist Queen topped the chart, selling over 77,000 copies. In the US album charts, Eminem's The Marshall Mathers LP held the top spot for an eighth straight week, 
while the UK album chart saw Dinner Party favourites The Cause dethrone Dinner Party favourites Coldplay from the number one spot with their third album, In Blue. Mercy is the compassion we feel for someone else's misfortune. Mercy compels us to alleviate that misfortune. Mercy is a child of charity but the sister of justice because both are about the invisible link that exists between people. Mercy is spontaneous because misery is involuntary. Kick off with Act 1 and Augustus defining mercy as the compassion we feel for someone else's misfortune and how it compels us to alleviate that, as well as describing mercy as the child of charity and the sister of justice, before finishing up by saying that misery is involuntary, as we cut to the library where Beecher is being met by his parents, marking the debut of Beecher's mother on the show, as well as special agent Pierce Taylor from the FBI, with Pete and Ray also attending. Beecher's mother, simply credited as Mrs. Beecher, is played by Kathleen Widows. Born March 21st, 1939 in Wilmington, Delaware, Kathleen attended the Sorbonne in Paris, France as part of a Fulbright scholarship, before making her stage acting debut in Bus Stop at the age of 18. Kathleen would make her TV acting debut in 1958, appearing as Jill Malone in five episodes of Young Dr. Malone, as well as appearing in off-Broadway productions such as The World of Susie Wong, The Three Sisters, The Idiot, and The Maid, and would make her film debut in 1966, appearing in The Group playing the role of Helena. Appearing mostly in minor roles in the 1970s with credits on TV for shows such as Bonanza, Punch and Jody and Kojak, Kathleen earned praise for her appearance on the soap opera Another World between 1978 and 1980, where she appeared as Rose Perini alongside a young Ray Liotta, as well as appearing in nine episodes of Ryan's Hope in 1983. With a minor role in Courage Under Fire in 1996 and an appearance in the ninth season of Law and Order in 1999, Kathleen's most famous role to this point was as Emma Snyder on the long-running CBS soap opera As the World Turns first appearing on the show as far back as 1985, before appearing here on Oz. Also making their debut in this scene is Special Agent Pierce Taylor, played by Robert John Burke. Born September 12, 1960 in Washington Heights and the son of Irish immigrants, Robert graduated with an acting degree from the Acting Conservatory at the State University of New York at Purchase. Making his acting debut in 1981, appearing in The Chosen as well as Gangster Wars, Robert's first notable role came in 1986 for an episode of The Equalizer, appearing during the show's debut season. In 1993, and with relatively few credits to his name, Robert was cast as Alex Murphy, aka Robocop, succeeding Peter Weller in the role for the franchise's second sequel, Robocop 3. Grossing a mere $10.7 million domestically, down over 76% from the takings of the previous film, Robocop 3 was a financial flop and poorly received by fans and critics, one even saying that this asinine sequel should be placed under arrest and ultimately killed the film arm of the Robocop franchise, leading to an over 20-year hiatus from the big screen for the character. Away from his disastrous turn as OCP Crime Prevention Unit 001, Robert also appeared in 1993's Tombstone, playing the role of Frank McClory, and in 1995 earned credits for the films Flirt and Killer, a Journal of Murder, as well as for Crazy for a Kiss on TV. Also in 1995, Robert appeared as Arthur Paley in the fifth season of Law and Order, while the following year he returned to film, appearing in the movies If Lucy Fell and Fled, as well as appearing as the lead in Thinner. 
1998, Robert appeared in Homicide Life on the Street during the show's sixth season, as well as From the Moon to the Earth, where he appeared for two episodes, while in 2000 he appeared in one episode of Falcon, before appearing here on Oz. So, Taylor is here to discuss the circumstances surrounding the kidnapping of Beecher's children, saying that they were abducted on their way home from school in which a Caucasian male had said that they had been sent by Mrs. Beecher to pick them up, and that while Beecher's son Gary was reluctant to go with him at first, he was eventually persuaded by being offered Pokemon cards before being driven away. Pete asks what's been done to find the children, but Taylor tells her that kidnappings tend to be a waiting game, and that they have to wait to be contacted. As Ray asks about what happens if they're not contacted, Beecher suggests using milk cartons to get the word out, which is something that I've never known to actually happen outside of seeing it in American media, so I don't know if it's just a US thing, or more specifically a US television or film thing or not, but I've never seen it being used anywhere else, and certainly not in the real world. Mrs. Beecher tries to calm her son, but he says that he knows that Schillinger is behind this. Not helping the situation, Taylor says that Beecher doesn't have any proof of Schillinger's involvement, and that because Beecher comes from a wealthy family, they most likely have a ransom situation on their hands. Beecher isn't prepared to play the waiting game though, and throws a cart of books to the floor, as well as throwing a printer against the wall, demanding that Taylor finds his kids as CEOs restrain him, and Officer Mustache leads Harrison and Mrs. Beecher away. The two CEOs attempting to restrain Beecher actually have quite a tough time of getting him under control, almost like Beecher has had the ultimate adrenaline rush powered by the thought of losing his children. Lee Turgeson did well to throw that printer against the wall too, that was a big cumbersome looking thing, and it did look for a second like he was going to drop it on the ground. Cut to the visiting slash interview room where Taylor is questioning Schillinger about his involvement in the kidnapping, Schillinger saying that he doesn't know anything about it. He admits that he and Beecher have a history, so he can understand why Beecher would think he was involved, but that the two of them also have something in common, that being fathers, as he tells Taylor about how he lost a son before, referencing Andrew, and that he knows what Beecher is going through. This of course isn't the first time that Schillinger has been questioned about something, there's been at least two previous instances of Leo doing the same as what Taylor is doing here but every time this happens, Schillinger seems to get away with it due to a lack of evidence. I'll say one thing for the guy, more often than not, he's very good at either distancing himself from the situation, or putting a fall guy in place. Very much like a former US president, who I won't name. We get a passage of time during which the visiting room has been reset to being an actual visiting room, with Beecher apologising to his father for his outburst in the library. Harrison has returned alone to speak to his son, and he asks Beecher to call his mum at some point, as she was quite upset by what she saw. Harrison apologises to his son, feeling as though he and Beecher's mum are in some way to blame for Beecher's alcoholism, and as a result the accident that landed Beecher in Oz, going so far as to say that they failed Beecher when he was growing up. But Beecher reassures him that while he'd love to blame his parents for the miserable shithole that his life has become, what's wrong with Beecher is inside him and that he either has to control it, or it'll control him, and that right now he just wants to hold his kids, referring to them as his babies. We then get one of my favourite pieces of direction that we've seen on the show, in which the camera pans across to the other side of the table, revealing Schillinger in the place of where Harrison was previously. He asks about the sweet young things being safe and sound, 
as the camera pans back across to reveal Hank sitting where Beecher was a moment ago, giving us a second scene without ever actually cutting away from the previous one. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out how this was done, it's just a question of switching out Lee Tergerson for Andrew Barshalon when the camera isn't on him. It's so simple, yet completely different and against the conventions of television, but not to the point that it comes across as being a bit out there or pretentious. The only downside to it would be that they were not able to change the background actors at the same time, so it looks as though the guy in the background, the guy with the red bandana, he's having a visit which seems to be lasting for hours. Changing out one actor for another is one thing, but in order to change the whole room, you'd either have to extend that shot on Schillinger before panning back so that everyone can get in place, or you would have to actually cut it in some way. Even so, I absolutely love that shot. Well done, Adam Bernstein. Schillinger tells Hank that it's time to kick things into overdrive, and that he wants his son to send the package. Hank asks his dad if he's totally sure, because he's been thinking about things lately. He admits that he's never had an issue with breaking the law before, mentioning about stealing a couple of Camry cars, but that kidnapping isn't really his style, as Schillinger tells him to keep his voice down. Schillinger offers to pay his son double from what they agreed, and all of a sudden kidnapping seems to be very much Hank's style after all. It's hard to tell if Hank was just angling for a little bit more money from his dad, or if he's just easily swayed if the price is right. I'm leaning more towards the former, coupled with Schillinger being prepared to pay whatever it takes if it means that Beecher suffers. Cut to the cafeteria, where Beecher approaches Eli Zabitz, asking if he can sit with him. Surprised by the question, Eli says that no one ever wants to sit with him, which would go some way in explaining why we've never seen Eli before. You'll notice as well, Eli's prison number starts with 9-6, meaning that he's been in Oz for around four years at this point but the fact that he's wearing a jumpsuit also means that he's likely housed in Unit B, which is probably another reason why we've never seen him before. Eli Zabitz is played by the guest-starring David Johansson. Born January 9th, 1950 in Richmond, now known as Staten Island, David's career in entertainment began in music in the late 1960s as part of the Vagabond Missionaries, and in 1971 he joined as the frontman for the New York Dolls after Johnny Thunders, the band's guitar player, relinquished the position. In their original incarnation, the New York Dolls released two studio albums, their self-titled debut in 1973, and Too Much Too Soon the following year. Despite being well received by critics, neither album was a commercial success, but both gained cult status and were considered influential for bands such as Kiss, The Ramones, The Damned and The Smiths. Following the dissolution of the band in the mid-70s, David embarked on a career as a solo artist, releasing his debut album, simply titled David Johansson, in February 1978, followed by In Style in 1979. David released three more well-received albums during the 1980s, before achieving commercial fame under the pseudonym Buster Poindexter. Accompanied by the Uptown Horns, David released Buster Poindexter's self-titled debut album in 1987, performing a mixture of jazz and lounge music, as well as a number of novelty songs. Achieving mainstream success with the single Hot Hot Hot, a cover of the 1982 hit by Arrow, the group performed as the house band on Saturday Night Live for a period, before releasing the follow-up album Buster Goes Berserk in 1989. 
Away from the music scene, David made his acting debut in 1985, appearing in Miami Vice, and the following year appeared in The Equalizer, while in 1988 he achieved his first major acting credit, appearing as the ghost of Christmas past in Scrooged. Appearing mostly in minor or guest-starring roles on TV and in film, including appearing as Tommy Thanatos in 1993's Mr. Nanny, which also featured Oz alumni Austin Pendleton, David continued to release material under the Buster Poindexter moniker into the 1990s, first with 1994's Buster's Happy Hour, followed by Buster's Spanish Rocket Ship in 1997. Also in 1994, David appeared in the second season of Nickelodeon's The Adventures of Pete and Pete, appearing in the episode On Golden Pete, which was directed by Adam Bernstein. With credits for the films The Tick Code and 200 Cigarettes in 1999 and 2000 respectively, David released the album David Johansson and the Harry Smiths, named after and including songs featured in Harry Everett Smith's anthology of American folk music. The album marked the release of material under David's own name for the first time since 1984, and was released on March 28, 2000, before appearing here on Oz. So Beecher sits down to talk with Eli, mentioning about Eli having previously spent time inside for kidnapping, something which Eli insists that he was framed for. The momentary delay from Beecher in saying, yeah, I'm sure you were, that was really funny, and he then goes on to mention about his children being abducted, Eli being quick to mention that he had nothing to do with it. Beecher tells him that he knows that, and that he's asking whether or not Eli might be able to look into it and maybe find out if somebody was hired to do the job. Eli says that he'll see what he can find out, but tells Beecher not to hold out much hope for finding his kids which is really fucking cold, and the whole aspect of Eli being involved with kidnapping in the past is played quite ambiguously. He's quick to say that he wasn't involved in Beecher's kids going missing, and obviously we know that he isn't, and that he was previously framed. But that closing line about not holding out hope for finding them? How would he know that unless he had previously committed such a crime? What's also quite clever is that the crime that Eli is in Oz 4, which we'll see in a flashback in a future episode, is completely unconnected to anything to do with kidnapping. So, who knows, maybe he was legitimately framed for the previous crime. Or maybe he's quite seasoned at it and knows that Beecher is unlikely to ever see his kids again. That coldness is completely undone with how the scene closes, however, with Eli asking Beecher whether or not he likes Def Leppard. Possibly another reference to Lee Tergerson's appearance in the Wayne's World movies, where he played long-haired cameraman Terry, or maybe a bit of a meta-gag playing off of David Johansson's involvement in the music industry. Before anyone asks, do I like Def Leppard or not? Meh, I can take them or leave them. If they were ever playing at a festival I was at, I might go watch them, depending who else was on at the same time, but I probably wouldn't go out of my way to ever watch them. We get an Augustus vignette detail in the list that the Catholic Church drew up showing the different ways one could show another mercy, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, etc. And there's a shot of Jesus Christ working in the kitchen handing out bread and fish to Schillinger and Jazz in the lunch line. Augustus also mentions about one of the showings of mercy being to ransom the captive, and how God-fearing folks were expected to pay for someone's safe return, asking who gets to ransom the captive in the modern day, and that today we're expected to visit the imprisoned. Jesus here, and we'll see him again later on, is played by Michael Patrick McCaffrey, 
I'm not going to do a full introduction for him as he doesn't speak on camera and only has a few seconds of actual screen time, but this episode was actually his acting debut. Cut to M-City where Keller is returning from his stay in the hospital. He approaches Beecher, who sat watching the TV, and tussles the back of his head. Beecher turns around quick as anything, seemingly on edge at the prospect of more bad news coming his way. He gets up and the two of them share a hug, as Menio shouts down from on high telling them to break it up. They both head into their pod as Beecher asks if Keller is okay, Keller saying, they stab me, they shoot me, I ain't going down, as he removes his t-shirt. Keller returns the favour and asks how Beecher is doing, as Beecher barely manages to hold back the tears and mentions about his kids, Keller saying that he'd heard about it and how fucked up it is, and that he's sorry for what's happened. Beecher says that he feels helpless, but at least his youngest child is safe, that being baby Harry. I think that's the first time that Harry has been mentioned on the show, and it seems to come completely out of nowhere, as every other time that we've seen Beecher's children, it's just been Gary and Holly. I honestly can't remember any mention of he and Genevieve having a third child. Keller comforts Beecher, telling him that Gary and Holly will be alright, as Beecher takes a look at Keller's gunshot wound, which seems to be lower down from what it was before, I don't know if that was just an error or not. Both men say that they've missed the other, as Keller goes to give Beecher a kiss, but Beecher turns away, and instead softly kisses Keller's wound as the scene closes. Keller's return to M-City is probably the best thing for Beecher at this point in time. It gives Beecher someone to depend on other than his usual allies, two of which have got their own issues going on, but more on those a bit later. It also adds strength in numbers for Beecher in the event of tensions boiling over with Schillinger once again. While that is unlikely due to them being in different units the majority of the time, we've seen before that they do still sometimes cross paths, and with Beecher being in the mental state that he currently is, it probably wouldn't take a whole lot to set him off. At least with Keller back they can either fight side by side, or Keller can be the calming influence that Beecher needs right now. We saw a moment ago that Beecher is perhaps feeling a bit edgy, and while he'll never likely be completely at ease whilst his kids are missing, Keller's presence can at least take some of the pressure off. Over in Unit B, Robson heads into his cell to talk with Schillinger, who's just there on the toilet, pants around his ankles, taking a shit for everyone to see. Robson mentions that Keller and Beecher have been reunited, as Schillinger says that he hopes they enjoy their night together, because it's going to be the last night of sleep or peace that Beecher's going to get for a very long time, as the pair of them grin like a pair of mischievous little fucks. Cut back to M-City where it's night time and we see a CO on patrol. Keller is out of his bed and sat up against the wall smoking a cigarette, which is the first time that I can remember seeing him do that on the show. The smell of smoke obviously acts as the trigger to wake Beecher up, who climbs down from his bunk to comfort Keller. Hey. What's the matter? Toby had died. And there's no way, like, I was there, but they brought me back, but I was there, Toby. I was in hell, and I felt everything. I felt the pain, and I felt the fire for all of eternity. Hey, hey, it's gonna be okay. No, it's not gonna be okay. Don't fucking lie to me. I was there, Toby. They're bringing me back. You know what's funny? You got pissed at me for talking to Satan about God, but that's what I was talking to him about, because if all that's left 
for us in this life is Oz. And we better start thinking about what's next. What comes after? The following day, Beecher is in Sister Pete's office sorting through some files as Pete arrives, and she's surprised to see Beecher there considering everything that's going on, but Beecher says that the work will help keep his mind from caving in on itself. Pete identifies with that, describing the group of death penalty protesters outside as a madhouse, although she does admit that the crowd is smaller than before, and that maybe people are getting used to capital punishment. A nice callback to Pete being one of the protesters herself back in series one. Beecher tells Pete that he needs to ask a favour, Pete saying that if she can, he knows that she will. Knowing full well what reaction he's going to get, Beecher asks her to talk with Keller, saying that Keller feels terrible. Pete tells Beecher that Keller is using him to get to her, the same way that he tried to use her to get to him in the first place, and that she won't play any of Keller's games. Beecher says that Keller is afraid that if she leaves the convent, then he's going to burn in hell. Pete retorting that Keller is going to burn alright, burn for all the other people that he's hurt and all the lives that he's destroyed, and makes a point of Beecher being one of those people. The scene closes with the two of them in somewhat of a standoff, going about their work in awkward silence, as we cut back to the library where Special Agent Taylor is meeting with Beecher and his parents once again. Taylor mentions that he's been going through the records of all the inmates, and that he's found a name that pops out as a potential connection to the kidnapping and mentions Keller's name as he looks through a file. Beecher is dismissive though, saying that Keller is his friend, as Harrison asks if he can look at the file. Taylor brings up the fact that Keller was the one that broke Beecher's arms and legs, Mrs. Beecher not being aware of the perpetrator beforehand, as Beecher defends Keller saying that he also saved his life from Schillinger, who he says once again is responsible for the kidnapping, not Keller. Harrison goes over Keller's previous crimes, such as armed robbery and assault, and also mentions kidnapping, something which Beecher says Keller was never convicted of. But Harrison seems more concerned, removing his glasses as a point of emphasis, about how police suspect Keller of raping, torturing and murdering several homosexual men. Beecher reaffirms his stance, saying that Keller can't be the one, his mother asking how Beecher can be so sure. After a moment of hesitancy, Beecher tells his mother that he knows Keller, and that he knows him intimately. Mrs. Beecher asks her son what he means as Taylor shifts his eyes as if to say, Hello, what's all this then? As Beecher tells his parents that he and Keller are lovers. So as we've talked about before, Chris Maloney was splitting his time between Oz and Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And this scene, along with the previously unmentioned kidnapping accusations against Keller, they exist to plant a seed for a storyline further down the line. But I don't think that actually occurs until the second half of the series, so we'll talk about that again in the future. It also adds to the woes of Beecher's parents, who, as Harrison mentioned earlier, already feel as though they've failed their son. But being a pair of upstanding Christians as well as being a part of an older generation, Beecher coming out as having had intimate relations with another man will only compound their feelings of failure. Cut to the mailroom where Robson is watching the x-ray monitor for any contraband items coming into Oz. He soon notices something and tells Schillinger that he needs to take a look at it. Robson says it's a package for Beecher as Schillinger comes over, 
and even Schillinger looks shocked at what's on the screen as his face just drops and he quietly mutters, Jesus Christ, before calling Claire over saying that they have a problem. So since Claire has been taken off of death row, we've seen her working in the hospital and now the mailroom. She seems to get bounced around quite a lot, which could be explained away in storyline as Leo may be keeping her moving so that she isn't in one place too often to cause shit. Or, as is more likely, she's just inserted into a scene as and when they need not only an established CO, but also one with something of an acting background. Most of the CEOs that we see on the show were local firemen, such as Phil Scorzarella and Tim Armstrong as Menio and Armstrong. Or in some cases were just police officers themselves, so they weren't trained actors. If they were to try and establish a CO as a character though, instead of just going with Claire whenever they need to, they've got Officer Mustache right there, I want to know more about him. Taking a look at the monitor, Claire asks what the hell she's looking at, Schillinger telling her that it's a child's hand, which looking back at it now could be where that Def Leppard reference comes into play. The band's drummer, Rick Allen, famously only has one arm, having it amputated following an accident in the mid-80s. We cut to M-City that night where Beecher is taking the news of his package about as well as you would expect, as Keller lays awake in his bunk, and a lovely crane shot takes us around M-City, where we see Saeed up against the glass of his pod weeping for his friend, before settling on a shot of Morales to close Act 1. Holy shit. Vern, you better come see this. What you got? Package for Tobias Beecher. Look. Jesus Christ. Officer Howell, we got a problem here. What the hell is that? A child's hand. gets underway in the hall with Mo Bay, who sat dead centre patiently waiting to be let out as Leo enters. As the door opens, Mo Bay shields his eyes from the light of the corridor, which I thought was a really nice touch of emphasising the literal darkness of the room, as opposed to the symbolic darkness that men who go there find themselves in. You recall back at the start of series 2 when Beecher was visited by Alva Case, Beecher was much more golem-like for having spent some time in the dark place. Leo asks the guard to leave them alone as he hands Mobe some clothes and asks how he's holding up. Mobe is under the impression that a few days in the hull will be enough to increase his credibility with the drug leaders. He also asks Leo if he's ever spent any time in the hull, Leo saying that he hasn't, which Mobe calls a good thing before heading back to MC. Upon his arrival, Mobe is met by Poet, who laughs at how shit Mobe looks and takes great delight in telling him as such. Mobay asks whether or not he's in with the others now, Poet mocking not only his accent, but the mere idea of him now being in, as he tells Mobay that Adebisi wasn't convinced the last time, and that Mobay has to take another test. That test is happening right now though, and also means that I get to dust off my MC's mic and say that right now, live from the Oswald State Correctional Facility Level 4 Gymnasium, it's showtime! 
Shinobu's next test, his next anointment if you will, sees him down in the gym asking Chucky if they're going to box or not. Mobe using all of his secret detective skills to decipher that by how Chucky is standing there with boxing gloves on. Morales explains that they want to see whether or not Mobe can take a punch, out of easy chiming in with or two. Mobe puts himself in real danger by getting in Adabizi's grill, asking if he has a problem with him, Adabizi telling Mobe that's weak. Mobe asks for his gloves, but this being a test and all means that this is boxing with a difference, as Chucky says they're not going to spar, and that he's going to use Mobe as a heavy bag. Morales gets in on the action, telling Mobe that they've got a little side bet going on about how long Mobe can stay standing as Adabizi channels his inner Razor Ramon and throws a toothpick at Mobe. With Mobe as ready as he'll ever be, Morales calls to the bell a la Carl Weathers in Rocky III, and Chucky jabs Mobe in the face, sending him stumbling backwards against the fence. Two hard hooks and two body shots put Mobe down, but he gets back up to receive two more body blows before being laid out with a hard right. Lance Reddick has some more fantastic facial reactions in this scene when getting battered by Chucky. That first jab especially, his eyes are about ready to pop out of his head. Morales proclaims that Mobe withstood 15 seconds of punishment, and asks the others to pay up, as the camera dissolves to Mobe laying in his bunk nursing his wounds. Poet enters and tells Mobe that he was impressive for taking such a beating, and that he's brought Mobe a little something to soothe the pain, and hands over a vial of drugs. Poet tells him see you later and leaves the pod as Mobe, still in tremendous agony, gets up and goes to throw the substance down the toilet, which by the way looks fucking disgusting. Sean Murphy would have a fit if he saw the state of that. Rather than dispose of the drugs, Mobe takes a hit, his altered state apparent with a little added motion effects, and he does so right at the moment that Augustus comes back, asking what the hell Mobe is doing. Mobe tells Augustus that he's having the breakfast of champions, the famous slogan for Wheaties cereal as well as the title of Kurt Vonnegut's 1973 novel, before getting back into his bunk to sleep off the pain. Later on, Mobe is summoned to meet with the partners. You wanted to see me? We just took a straw poll on you. I voted yes. I voted no. I abstained. A tie. How do I break these ties? The final test. Which is? You gotta kill somebody. Who? Anybody. We don't care. I read. I do it. So not only is Mobe starting to spiral into actual drug taking, he's been tasked with killing someone to show his worthiness. I quite liked how the scene ended with Mobe looking out over the rest of M-City, leaving it somewhat ambiguous as to who he might try and take out. I'm not a fan of abstaining from voting though, like Morales does here. Abstaining is pretty much the same as a no in my eyes. Feared up on Pete enjoying some soup in the break room as a nervous Ray enters saying that he has terrible news. He tells her that Cardinal Abgot is on his way to Oz not in the arrested for things that may or may not have happened within the Catholic Church sort of way, but instead coming to say a mass as well as meet with some of the staff, and even some of the inmates. Pete asks if Ray is friends with Abgot or not, and we get a reminder that Ray worked with the Cardinal in his office before being transferred to Oz, Ray saying that he disagreed with him once too often. 
Pete figuratively says, fuck this shit, I'm taking the day off, dodging Ray's protestations by saying that she has one foot out of the convent door, and that hobnobbing with the Cardinal, which sadly doesn't involve having tea and biscuits, would be a little hypocritical. Ray tells her that Abgot has specifically asked to meet with Pete, having received a letter from an inmate at Oz. Pete shows off her questionable detective skills once more by not immediately realising that it was Keller who wrote the Cardinal, as we cut to Ray's office where he meets with Cardinal Francis Abgot, played by the guest starring Gavin MacLeod, who, outside of this appearance, I know from just one other thing. I say we call Matlock. He'll find the culprit. It's probably that evil Gavin MacLeod or George Goober Lindsay. Born Alan George C. on February 28, 1931 in Mount Kisco, New York and growing up in nearby Pleasantville, Gavin graduated from Ithaca College with a bachelor's degree in fine arts before spending two years as an airman in the US Air Force. Moving to New York City and working as an usher and an elevator operator at Radio City Music Hall while looking for acting jobs, he adopted the stage name Gavin McLeod by taking the Christian name of a character that he'd seen on TV, with the surname of his drama coach at Ithaca, Beatrice McLeod. Gavin made his Broadway debut in 1956, appearing as a replacement in A Handful of Rain at the Lyceum Theatre, and would later move to Los Angeles in an attempt to break into TV and film acting. Gavin would make his TV debut in 1957, appearing in a minor role in The Walter Winchell File, and would make his film debut in 1958, appearing in I Want to Live. That same year, Gavin appeared on Peter Gunn, a show on which he would appear again in 1960, only in a different role. In 1962, Gavin would return to the Broadway stage in The Captain and the Kings at the Playhouse Theatre, although the show would close after only seven performances. That same year, Gavin earned his first major recurring role, appearing as Seaman Joseph Happy Haynes on ABC's McHale's Navy for 73 episodes until 1964. The show would get a movie spin-off in 1964, as well as a 1965 sequel, McHale's Navy Joins the Air Force. With appearances on shows such as Rawhide, The Man from Uncle and Hogan's Heroes throughout the 1960s, Gavin would also appear in the movies The Sand Pebbles, The Thousand Plane Raid and The Intruders. In 1970, Gavin appeared as Moriarty in Kelly's Heroes, his final film appearance to this point. Also that year, Gavin became a regular on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, appearing as Murray Slaughter for 168 episodes until 1977. Also in 1977, Gavin landed his most famous role, appearing as Captain Merrill Steubing on ABC's The Love Boat. A rating success which also saw him become a spokesperson for Princess Cruises, the show ran for 245 episodes across nine seasons, as well as five TV specials, the last of which aired in 1990. Following the conclusion of The Love Boat, Gavin settled into appearing in guest-starring roles, such as Murder, She Wrote in 1990 and Burke's Law in 1994, as well as returning to the stage in 1996 in Gigi at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey, before appearing here on Oz. Abgot knocks on the door and lets himself in, Ray shaking his hand and kissing his ring, a traditional showing of respect towards cardinals and bishops, and of course the Pope. It's a tradition that the current Pope, Pope Francis, has tried to steer away from in recent years, something which has led to a mixed response within the church. Abgot tells Ray that it's a pleasure to see him and then says let's suit up, and I'd love to think that cardinals see themselves as some kind of superhero when saying that, 
Abgot perhaps being Batman and Ray in the role of Robin the Boy Wonder? Abgot asks Ray if he knows why he sends him to Oz, Ray suggesting that maybe he had too many opinions. But Abgot tells him that he had too big of an ego back then, something which he feels as though has changed. Cut to the cafeteria where Abgot is giving communion to inmates and staff, and in the background there's a camera crew filming the event. I suppose it's not every day that you get a visit from someone from the Vatican, so this is a pretty big deal for the prison. When he gets to the front of the line, Keller places out his tongue for Abgot to place the communion wafer onto, which always seems a bit weird that Abgot just goes along with it, but it could perhaps be a reference back to Series 1 when Donald Groves did the same thing to Ray who was hesitant to do it, and Keller passes Sister Pete on his way out before she receives her wafer. Abgot meets with Pete in the library to discuss speaking with the head of the Order, a sister Leo Cadia, and he asks Pete about questioning a vocation. A nervous-looking Pete, something which we rarely see, agrees that she is indeed questioning her standing in the church, Abgot telling her, welcome to the club. This seems to put Pete at ease, as Abgot describes his first parish being a desolate area in the country, working alongside an old pastor, and an even older housekeeper, and describes how when the winter hit he was lonely. Saying that he would cry and pray, Pete lying about doing the same, Abgot tells her that whatever choice she makes, it will be the right thing to do. Abgot holds out his hand, and Pete kisses his ring, and there's really no way of saying that without it sounding like a euphemism. Pete heads back to her office, but as she goes, she passes Keller, as we close out Act 2. I spoke to the head of your order, Sister Leocadia. She says you're questioning your own vocation. Yes, I am. Welcome to the club. You? My first parish was way out in the country, a desolate area. The pastor was old, the housekeeper even older. In the winter hit, I was lonely. I cried. Then I prayed. I cried some more. And prayed even harder. Well, that's, that's what I'm doing. Good. Then whatever you decide will be the right thing to do. Thank you. God bless you, sister. Bless you, sister. Act 3 then sees Saeed meeting with the other inmates in one of the MCD classrooms to discuss the latest goings-on with a riot lawsuit. He goes over how the jury has ruled in their favour, judging that the state was in fact guilty for all the injuries and deaths in the riot, and that they have recommended that the inmates receive the full $45 million settlement. Obviously some very happy inmates here, but he warns them not to go spending their winnings straight away as the state is appealing the verdict, especially with it being an election year. Ryan asks Saeed if he can speed things up, but Saeed says that the legal system moves slowly, with Rebido mentioning about how it took nearly 30 years for the inmates at Attica to win their lawsuit. Ryan jokes about how if it takes 30 years for him to get his money, he'll be ancient, even comparing himself to Rebido. While he admits that it may be frustrating, Saeed assures them all that the court ruling was a huge victory for them, and that they must remain resolved. But everyone leaves with the wind having been taken out of the sails a little after hearing about the appeal. 
I've mentioned Attica in the 1971 riot previously on the show, and there is far too much to unpack about that in detail here, although there are some really good podcasts out there that delve into the story. But what Ribido mentions here was relatively recent in terms of real-world events. After a number of delays, the trial of the inmates against the state of New York had begun in October 1991 in the district court in Buffalo, a full 20 years after the uprising, with a partial verdict being returned in February 1992, and settlement negotiations beginning a month later. As Saeed mentions here, the legal system did in fact move slowly, and it wasn't until May 1997 that Frank Big Black Smith, an inmate who had been appointed as head of security during the riot, was awarded $4 million in damages, the largest verdict ever awarded to a prisoner at the time, while another inmate, David Brozig, was awarded $75,000. However, the Federal Appeals Court overturned Smith's $4 million reward and also overturned its finding of liability against ex-Deputy Warden Carl Feel, citing that the handling by the trial's judge was so flawed that it violated the defendant's rights. It wasn't until January 2000, a mere seven months prior to this episode airing, that attorneys representing the state of New York and the surviving inmates reached a $12 million settlement, $8 million of which was awarded, with the other $4 million going towards legal fees. Even after the settlement, the state admitted no wrongdoing in any events involved in the lead-up to the uprising, or the subsequent retaking of the prison on the orders of Commissioner Russell G. Oswald, who we've mentioned before as being a possible reference as to where Oz gets its name. With the inmates heading out, Saeed starts to leave too, but Rebido blocks his path, asking if Saeed has ever killed anybody. Seemingly disturbed by the question, Saeed answers no, but Rebido describes watching the life fade from someone's eyes as being an extraordinary experience, as we get flashbacks to the last episode where Rebido killed El Cid. He says that even as El Cid was dying, his instinct was to strike back and to try and kill him, and that survival meant less than revenge. Wondering where this talk is going, Saeed tries to leave once again, but Rebido follows Saeed down some corridored stairs that we seldom see, asking how Saeed has gotten Jason a new trial. He says that he knows about the pressure that Saeed has been under from the other Muslims about being involved in the case, and that maybe Saeed should listen to them. Saeed asks why he should do that, and for the first time in a while, Rebido seems to have had one of his premonitions, in which he has seen that Jason will go free. Having had enough of Rebido's cryptic ramblings, Saeed explains that Jason is guilty of murdering his lover, and that he's seen the original trial's transcripts as well as all the evidence, and he's certain that Jason will be convicted again. Rebido asks why Saeed fought for a new trial despite knowing all of that, as Saeed answers that Jason was convicted because he was gay. Rebido concludes that this is all just theoretical for Saeed, but Saeed fires back saying that nothing about justice is theoretical. Rebido asks what happens if Jason goes free, but Saeed remains certain that that won't happen, as Rebido leaves telling Saeed to pray that he's right about that. It's been a long time since we've seen a proper interaction between these two, and I quite liked it, especially now that Rebido has a bit of swagger to him following the killing of El Cid. He didn't have a whole lot to do in Series 3, but he's been re-established really well early on in this series. Cut to the gym where Saeed meets up with Jason. There's been a request for a meeting regarding Jason's case, a meeting with a Robert Stransky, the detective who arrested Jason originally. Cut to the visiting room where Saeed and Jason are meeting with Stransky, played here by Richard Bright. Born June 28, 1937 in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, 
Richard began his career at the age of 18, appearing on live television, and would make his film debut with an uncredited appearance in 1958, Never Love a Stranger. In 1965, Richard appeared in Michael McClough's two-person show, The Beard, along with Billy Dixon, and performed in a number of cities around the world, including San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and London. A controversial play, Richard and his co-star were arrested during the show's San Francisco run, charged with uttering obscenities and simulating sexual acts. The charges were eventually dismissed, and the case against Richard was considered important in the debate on free speech, particularly relating to actors' rights. Appearing mostly in minor roles on TV and in film, Richard's most famous role saw him cast in The Godfather in 1972, playing the role of Al Neri, Michael Corleone's enforcer and bodyguard. Richard would reprise the role for the film's two sequels, 1974's Godfather Part II and 1990's Godfather Part III, making Richard one of only five actors to appear in all three films. Following the success of The Godfather, Richard was cast in 1973's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Rancho Deluxe in 1975, as well as Marathon Man and Looking for Mr. Goodbar in 1976 and 1977 respectively. Richard would play another hired killer in Sergio Leone's 1984 gangster epic, Once Upon a Time in America, playing the role of Chicken Joe. In the 1990s, Richard appeared on Law & Order on three separate occasions, playing different roles, as well as two episodes of Third Watch on NBC. In 2000, he appeared in minor roles in the movies The Photographer and Broke Even, before appearing here on Oz. Seemingly at death's door, Stransky is shown here needing to use an oxygen tank to help with his breathing. Richard Bright was suffering with emphysema at this point and would be seen with an oxygen tank in a number of later roles. However, these were just props used on the show. Here's the deal. You got this cocksucker in neutral, right? <laughs> My doctor tells me I got three or four more months to live. Now, before I die, I want to make certain things straight. I want you to know I tampered with the evidence. I couldn't find the murder weapon, so I went to the kitchen. I opened the drawer and took out a kitchen knife and I smeared it in the blood and I dropped it next to his body. His fingerprints were all over that knife. <coughs> no. <coughs> no, they weren't. <laughs> My pal in forensics doctored up the test. And you would be willing to give a deposition to go into court and say this. I know this fuck is guilty as shit, but I want to buy back a piece of my soul. Yeah, if you want me to. I'll yell it from the prison roof. Okay, sweetheart? So you remember how I mentioned that there might be a twist to this tale in the last episode? Well, that's what we've got here with Stransky confessing to not so much framing, but ensuring that there would be a conviction against Jason through a mixture of planting evidence as well as doctored fingerprint evidence, which is just so fucking ludicrous watching it back. It's a bit of a cop-out. The difference in facial expressions between Saeed and Jason is quite good, though. Saeed seemingly realising what this confession means in terms of a new trial, while Jason sports a shit-eating grin, knowing that he'll likely go free because of it. The two of them head out with Jason saying that when they go public, the press will get a 7-inch boner, which when you measure it out is pretty sizable. 
With this confession, as well as a conveniently deceased witness seemingly placing the ball squarely in Jason's court, Saeed recusses himself as Jason's lawyer with immediate effect. It's a bitter pill for Saeed to swallow as he was so certain of Jason's guilt. In fact, he still is. That hasn't changed. And Jason has never denied his guilt at any point. It's painfully ironic that Saeed strives for justice, and he does get that in a way here. Any other time, he'd probably be delighted to expose the legal system as corrupt and see someone beat it because of something like this. But he knows that Jason is only getting away with this on a technicality. Those are the key words, getting away with it. I'm not saying that what's happening here is right, let me be clear on that. But if there is a clear example of evidence tampering, that throws the entire legal process into question, including any aspect of a new trial. And ultimately, Jason has to go free because of this. We get an Augustus vignette in which he says a sinner can't admonish another sinner, which plays against the backdrop of the M-City regulars and Schillinger recreating Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. So the roles that everyone is playing in this recreation are, on Jesus' right, you've got Jazz as Judas Iscariot, Rebido as St. Peter, while Schillinger is in the role of John, while on Jesus' left you've got Ryan and Cyril as Thomas and James the Great, Adebisi as Philip, while rounding out things are Keller as Matthew, Beecher as Jude Thaddeus, and Saeed in the role of Simon the Zealot. As Saeed watches the news report informing of Jason's victory in court, meaning that he is indeed a free man, he stares down Rebido, who doesn't exactly look pleased about his premonition coming true, as Saeed leaves and the other Muslims look less than impressed. At night, Saeed is praying in his pod, but Arif tells him that Alar isn't listening, and that he is deaf to Saeed. Cut to the Oz entrance where Jason has his bag of possessions, signs a form finalising his release, and gives a little pirouette and curtsy to everyone before heading out of the door to close the scene. To instruct the ignorant, counsel the doubtful, to admonish the sinners. In order for these works of mercy to happen, you need two things. Someone in distress, and someone with the capacity to help them. In other words, an ignoramus can't instruct another ignoramus, and a sinner can't admonish a sinner. So that's it for Jason Kramer. While he isn't the first person on the show to get his release, he is the first to get his release and stay gone from the show. Watching the show back, I kind of feel that this moment, this first real release from Oz, maybe should have gone to someone else. I just don't feel as though we as an audience are invested in Jason as a character enough to warrant this. Having said that, if you don't give it to someone like Jason, even if he is just being released on a technicality, then who do you release? Is there actually anybody from the main cast that deserves to be released at this point? The answer, quite frankly, is no. Everybody deserves to be where they are right now, so the next best option is to use this release to fuel someone else's storyline, which is exactly what's happened here. Saeed had that moment where he had essentially won, the moment where he got Jason his new trial, but he's had that taken away from him, and it's happened through no fault of his own really. What this has done has left Saeed with more questions about himself and how he can help others. He's now lost one hearing outright when defending Augustus, had another one snatched away from him, and he's also struggling to keep people on side through the ongoing riot lawsuit. On top of all of that, he's still not completely at peace with the other Muslims, who are unlikely to see Jason's release as a positive thing despite Saeed recussing himself from the case towards the end. For all his attempts to help others, all Saeed has achieved so far is to distance himself further and further away. 
We fade up on Leo making his way around the prison, passing through the new inmate holding area, where he runs into Saeed, who's working the desk where the new inmates get their bedding and other essentials. He asks Leo for a moment of his time, and asks Leo about recent meetings with the community leaders regarding McManus' replacement, as well as the possibility of that person being African American. Leo jokes about Saeed having his office bugged, which is a good point, Saeed does seem to know a lot about this. But as Arnold Zellman was a part of those meetings, it's probable that he has passed that information on to Saeed at some point when they've been discussing the riot lawsuit. Saeed asks if he can meet with Leo himself to discuss possible candidates, but it turns out that Saeed is too late, and that Leo has already hired someone for the job, someone who's on their way to us at that very moment. And in a huge moment for the show, and one that I know a lot of folks have been really looking forward to, it's time to meet none other than Martin Quarns, played by Reggie Cathy. As I say, big moment on the show here with this character coming in. Quarns is a massive fan favourite with viewers. When I was putting the podcast together to begin with, which seems like an absolute lifetime ago now, I asked people online for help with a title for the show. One of those that came back was Quernscast, which, considering that it takes nearly 30 episodes for him to arrive, and as a result of that reference to make sense, it's a testament to his popularity among the fans. Born August 18th, 1958 in Huntsville, Alabama, Reginald Urias Cathy was born into a military family, his mother working for the Department of Defense, while his father was a colonel in the US Army, serving in World War II, as well as the wars in Korea and Vietnam. This meant that Reg moved around a lot as a youngster and spent his childhood living on a farm in West Germany. While living there, Reg developed an interest in theatre at the age of nine after attending a show by the United Service Organization, before moving back to Alabama at the age of 14. After graduating from J.O. Johnson High School, where he appeared in a school production of To Kill a Mockingbird, Reg studied theatre at the University of Michigan, as well as the Yale School of Drama. Making his TV debut in the 1984 TV movie A Doctor's Story, Reggie's first recurring role came in 1987, where he appeared in a number of roles on PBS children's show Square One Television. The exact number of episodes he appeared on during the show's run differs depending which source you use, with some saying as few as 24, while others say as many as 230, so make of that what you will. Following a number of minor roles on film, including appearances in Penn and Teller Get Killed and Born on the 4th of July in 1989, Reggie's first notable role came in 1994, where he appeared as Freeze in The Mask. Also that year, Reg appeared in Clear and Present Danger and Airheads, while in 1995 he appeared in the cult hit Tank Girl, as well as the David Fincher-directed Seven, where he appeared as the coroner alongside Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman an actor whom Reg has been compared to on a number of occasions due to his trademark baritone voice. Returning to TV in 1997 as Alan Epps in HBO's Arliss, Reg appeared in Homicide Life on the Street the following year during the show's sixth season, playing the role of Bernard Weeks in the episode Full Court Press. Reg would reprise this role in February of 2000 in Homicide the Movie, broadcast on NBC and directed by Oz alumni John Desagonzac, while in April he would appear as a homeless man and first on-screen victim of Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, directed by fellow Oz alumni Mary Harron. Also in April, Reg appeared in HBO miniseries The Corner, appearing as a drug addict named Scalio in a show which I'm beginning to feel like I need to watch, before appearing here on Oz. So Quans meets with Leo in his office, thanking him for the opportunity, and that he's aware of M-City's reputation, 
we are describing it as a failed experiment. Quans isn't so sure about that, saying that the first stage of the unit may have been a failure, but like with any worthwhile experiments, they need to try different methods. Leo says that the most important things to him are keeping a lid on the racial tension, as well as the violence in general, priorities which Quans also shares. Quans asks if he has Leo's permission to do what he deems necessary to keep the peace, Leo saying that he'll allow Quans to have a fairly free hand, at least until he fucks up. Quans says that he can't ask for any more than that, and they seal the deal with a handshake as the scene closes. The two of them make their way through M-City to meet the inmates, and this shot of them walking through the unit along with the look on the inmates' faces was really well done. The inmates, although aware of a change forthcoming, don't look as though they were aware that a new man had been put in charge. The only person clued in on that appears to have been Saeed. The whole walk up to the steps shadowed by a CO, it's almost like Quans is getting some kind of boxing walkout. I absolutely loved this. Murphy, who's back in his uniform, gives Quans a nod of acknowledgement, almost as if to say, thank fuck you're here, you can deal with this shit now. Leo introduces Quans to the inmates of M-City, as Quans hits one of the best lines on the show so far. Okay, everybody, listen up. I want to introduce you to Martin Quarren's new unit manager. He has a vast range of experience, having worked in both federal prisons as well as state detention centers. The warden is correct. I have served in many correctional facilities, but what he didn't say was that, like most of you, I come from the streets. I'm not some candy-ass white liberal looking to turn you into better citizens. I intend to meet with each of you individually, but until that time, keep one principle in mind. Don't fuck with quirks. That's all. One little touch that I also really liked was how Leo introduced Quans as the new unit manager. Previously on the show, McManus and Murphy for his short stint were known as the unit's supervisors, so by changing the job title just that little bit, it's indicative of the new regime which M-City is under, something which is also exemplified by Quern's burying McManus as a candy-ass white liberal. Cut to Quern's making himself at home in his office, unpacking boxes as well as decorating the wall with African tribal masks. He's meeting with Adebisi, Quern's mentioning that he wanted to meet with him first, having heard that Adebisi is one of the leaders in the unit so far as the drug trade goes. He talks about his past working for Slim Sam Colby, an ironic name due to Slim Sam weighing close to 300 pounds, but he tells Adebisi that he worked his way up through the organisation until Slim Sam was killed by Ricky J. Lee, who sounds like he should be a guitarist in some 80s glam rock band, and it was at that moment that Quern's decided that it was time to retire from the drug trade. Adebisi wonders what the point of all this is, as Quans tells him that he knows every trick that Adebisi has, and that he's smarter than him, because unlike Adebisi, he never got caught, before asking the eternal question about how Adebisi keeps his hat on his head, much like Nino back in series 1. Quans goes to remove Adebisi's hat, which enrages Adebisi, who grabs Quans by the arm, but Quans shows no fear, asking whether or not Adebisi is going to hit him, before telling him to sit back down. Quans then tells Adebisi to listen up, establishing his dominance by referring to Adebisi by his full name, and as far as he sees it, drugged out inmates make for a quiet cell block, 
so Adebisi can sell whatever he wants to whoever he wants, on the proviso that so long as there's no violence, he'll be looking the other way. The two men coming to an agreement as the scene closes. Adebisi meets with Chucky and Morales, telling them about the terms of Quern's deal. The scene starts off with Adebisi looking in the mirror with his hat off, and he then places it on his head. So, seeing as two people have asked this now, it's time to answer the age-old question, how exactly does Simon Adebisi keep that hat on his head? Why do they do that? Questions you wanted to ask, answers we set out to get. Well, it's pretty obvious when you think about it. If you're like me and have either a shaved head or just extremely short hair, it's just being kept on by the stubble of Adewale's head acting against the material of the hat, as explained by Lisa Padovani, who worked on the show as a costume designer during the first two series on her appearance in the Animini Questionable Movies podcast. It's one of those shows where it's hard to tell how much money yeah. HBO is throwing at it because everybody's wearing, like, a white T-shirt. I mean, we're... Not everybody, but you know, like it was prison, so you had uniforms, certain guys were in suits. The prisoners, you know, you had to come up with extra clothes to give them their look of whatever. Oh, like, like, they were in. Yeah. Thing. yeah, like that's Adewali, you know, and he, mm. and because he had enough stubble on his head, uh, because he shaved his head, that little hat never moved. It was amazing. <laughs> You know, because oh, 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 that that other oh, I, that wasn't even the hat. I was thinking of uh, oh, add a uh, Wally's little knit hat, and he would purchase. Oh yeah, no, that's definitely the hat of. Wait, how did I not even think of that? Yeah, that that's yeah. like the costuming question of the century. We just answered there. How the hell does that hat stay on his head? It was the actual stubble of his shaved head because you know the knit of the hat would just sort of it was like Velcro. <laughs> oh, I was yeah. surprised. I know. We had such such nice actors on that show, really, truly. Chucky seems quite open to the proposal, but Morales is a little more cautious, saying it could be a trick. But Adebisi seems to think that Quern's is being genuine. Chucky likens it to the old days of the mob, and how the cops would back away because Sicilians could control their own streets, and that Little Italy was the safest place in the city. They go to a vote on the matter, Adebisi and Chucky voting yes, with Morales also agreeing as they go about their business. Cut to Leo's office where he is meeting with McManus, back after a hiatus of one episode. He tells McManus that he's glad that he called, saying that he's been meaning to call McManus himself, which I'm on the fence about being true or not. Obviously, the two of them go back a long way, but the fashion in which Leo fired McManus, I don't know, maybe it would have been a case of out of sight, out of mind. Mamanus admits about how after the shooting and with Diane leaving, he went a little south, which is somewhat of an understatement. Mamanus even making reference to singing at Officer Howard's memorial service as being a particular moment of madness. He does, however, say that having taken some time to rest and relax and to think things over, he feels as though he's ready to come back and run M-City once again. Leo, on the other hand, not so keen on the idea, telling Mamanus that the job's no longer available. McManus tells Leo to unhire the new kid in town, but Leo tells him no. McManus talks about how he took the heat for the gun coming into MC, only to then read in the papers about how it was the actions of Clayton Hughes, who he refers to as Leo's little protege. Leo admits to Clayton's involvement, and that he's been charged with a trial due to start in a few weeks, but until then he's out on bail, which is quite something for someone on a weapons charge. 
McManus once again says that he wants his unit back, clearly seeing M-City as his baby, but Leo stands his ground, asking how many times do you want to hear me say no? McManus pleads with Leo, saying that this is his life, something which Leo is all too aware of, but he's not going to budge on this, which prompts McManus to leave. Just as he's heading out the door, Leo makes another offer, saying that he needs someone to run Unit B due to the retiring supervisor, referring to him simply as a vote. Thinking about it for all of three and a half seconds, McManus says that he'll take it, and we cut to McManus making his way through his new unit with his cardboard box and belongings. He passes Schillinger, playing a game of pool as always, because that seems to be the only thing to do in Unit B, who jokes about how McManus has come to join the party, much to the amusement of his lackeys. So outside of a couple of trips to Unit B in past episodes, this is the first time that McManus and Schillinger will have actually been in the same unit together since Series 2, Schillinger being sent to Genpop after conspiring to have Beecham murdered. Cut to the entrance of Oz, where Leo and Devlin are having some publicity photographs taken for their upcoming campaign. Devlin mentions about how the capture of Booth Mallards, as well as the Cardinal's recent visit, have helped with recent situations, Wendy saying that recent polls show that 42% of the public see the prison system as being run well, an increase of 16% since the M-City shooting. 42% of the public showing themselves to be complete fucking idiots right there, as if it was being well run, there wouldn't have been a mass shooting or a jailbreak in the first place. But then again, if the events of the last few years have taught us anything, it's that you shouldn't always trust the polls. Leo asks about any potential backlash that they may receive with Shelley's execution coming up. Devlin says that there might be a little, but that recapturing Miguel would help to balance things out, Leo saying that unfortunately Miguel is nowhere to be found. Wendy says that despite those two issues, the biggest concern is Clayton, who has been making a lot of noise whilst out on bail condemning Devlin, which Leo says he's aware of right as a photo is taken of him sporting a big smile. Some excellent timing right there. Devlin asks about Leo's relationship with Clayton, as Leo once again tells us about being a rookie with Clayton's father, and how he died in Leo's arms. Proving herself to be a soulless bitch, Wendy says that they can use that on the campaign trail, as Devlin says that Leo needs to talk to Clayton and tell him to shut up. Devlin checks his watch and says that he has to leave to go and charm the DAR, referring to the Daughters of the American Revolution, as he steps off his little footstool that he's been standing on while having his picture taken, which was a good little gag and another nod to his Napoleon complex. Leo asks for Mobe, who apparently assists Leo outside of the office as well, to get Clayton in for a talk, as we cut to them talking in the dark corridor. What I'm asking is for you to cool the rhetoric. Rhetoric? I speak the truth. Devlin represents all that is evil in white society. And honestly, I can't understand how you could even think of running with him as lieutenant governor. Clayton, you lived a very protected childhood. Ah, here we go. You know, not everything is tied to my father's death. Yes, it is. You only see the world as black and white. Trust me, Clayton, life is gray. As gray as these fucking walls. Now, I don't love James Devlin, but I don't see him as Satan either. Somebody must stop him. And soon... Over in M-City, the guys are watching TV, which is running the Alva Case campaign ad once again. Nikolai is giving out to Ryan and Cyril about how Americans think that just because they have democracy, that they're better than everyone else. He claims that elections are not what makes a country great, and not to sound like a broken record, but take the events of the last few years into account and he's probably got a point. 
Ryan musters up all of his knowledge about Russia and jokes about vodka being what makes Nikolai's country great. A weak joke with an equally weak delivery. But Nikolai says that it's Bashelnoste, which thankfully was included in the DVD subtitles because there was no way that I was spelling that on my own, which apparently means to be ruthless. Cyril, bless him, joins in the conversation saying that he doesn't know anybody called Ruth, as Ryan mentions to Nikolai about how they could make a lot of money renting out the cell phone, seen as their business partners and all. Nikolai, however, sees things differently, and says that the phone is his, and that the more people who know about it, the sooner someone will go blabbing to the guards, and he tells Ryan to keep his mouth shut tight. He leaves the O'Reillys to watch TV as Ryan talks about how he wishes he could find out where Nikolai was hiding the phone. Cyril likens it to a treasure hunt, which seems to set off a light bulb in Ryan's head, quickly setting Cyril the task of finding the phone, asking him to cover every inch of MC, but he can't let anyone know that he's doing it, especially not Nikolai. This was a really sweet moment between the brothers, with Ryan explaining the rules of the game to Cyril. It was a real window into how they were as kids. So Cyril heads off to try and find the cell phone, and we get a montage of him looking under desks in the classroom, under the tables in the computer room, as well as behind the textbooks, which he just throws all over the floor, inside the washing machines going through someone's dirty undies, but it's all to no avail as he meets up with Ryan later on to tell him the bad news. As Ryan paces back and forth, Nikolai passes by their pod and gives a very cheeky acknowledgement with his newspaper, Ryan smiling back but saying through gritted teeth that he's going to kill that motherfucker. Even though this was a pretty short segment, I really liked it, as it's another one of those scenes that just breaks up the heaviness of the show from time to time. Ryan getting more and more agitated as Nikolai continues to get one over on him was good to see too. Ryan is so used to getting his own way, it's refreshing to see him on the back foot and being outwitted for once. Cut to Leo's office where Gloria has come in to visit, covering her face with sunglasses to hide the bruising from her attack. Leo almost goes to hug Gloria out of instinct, but stops and asks if it's okay. It's all a bit awkward, but it also makes complete sense that Gloria might not be so willing. She does allow him to do so, though, after a slight hesitation, as Leo then asks her to take a seat. He asks if he can get her anything, or do anything for her, as Gloria tells him that he can start by not being so damn nice, which clears the air somewhat. She admits that she doesn't really mean that, though, and that Leo knows what she's going through, referring back to the rape of Leo's daughter, Ardith. Leo says that his daughter is better now, and that in time, Gloria will be too. The use of better was quite telling from Leo. He doesn't say that Ardith is recovered from her attack, seemingly not wanting to downplay things, but at the same time making Gloria aware that she is going to need time to heal, not only from a physical standpoint, but from a mental one as well. Gloria tells Leo that she wants to come back to work, which Leo thinks is too soon, but Gloria says that if she doesn't come back now, then she likely never will. Leo, again almost instinctively taking Gloria's hand for comfort, tells her that he doesn't want her to quit, but that healing is a process, and a slow one at that. Gloria disagrees with him and says that there's only one thing she needs to do to make herself feel better, and that's to confront Ryan O'Reilly. With that having been said, Gloria and Ryan meet under the supervision of Sister P. Gloria tells Ryan that she knows that Ryan is responsible for having her raped, something which Ryan predictably denies. Gloria says that Ryan called someone and asked them for a favour, Ryan asking why he would do such a thing. 
Gloria says that it might have been because things didn't go his way in the session with the Nathans, maybe it was because he couldn't manipulate her, or maybe it's just because Ryan is a twisted fuck. Ryan asks if she truly wants him to say that he called a pal of his to have them beat and rape her, Gloria telling him yes. Ryan gives Gloria what she wants, and says that he did it, and asks if she's happy. A momentary smile crosses Gloria's face for having heard that come out of Ryan's mouth, but she says that throughout this whole time, he said over and over again that he loves her, and that he just wanted her to say it back. But Gloria's main motivation for coming today was to see Ryan's face when she told him that she will never love him, and that she actually hates him, and she will hate him until they are both dead in the ground. Ryan accepts Gloria's hatred, but being the master manipulator that he is, he asks whether or not she thought of him when she was being fucked. Pete's reaction, a mixture of all for fuck's sake as well as being horrified, pales in comparison to Gloria's, as she leaps over the coffee table pushing Ryan up against the wall, throwing as many adrenaline fueled punches and slaps as she can, before Officer Mustache comes in to break it up and take Ryan away, all the while asking if Gloria thought of him, as Pete embraces a crying Gloria. Augustus narrates about comforting the afflicted, saying that there are a lot of ways to do so, but that a lot of afflicted don't want to be, as Pete meets with Ryan in her office for a follow-up. Gloria Nathan has decided to press charges against you, so you might be looking at uh, another five years added onto your sentence. Five years, gee. And I have to file a report. Fine. I know you pretty well, Ryan, and it may seem crazy, but I have to tell you that I think you're lying. I don't think you had anything to do with Gloria's rape. I said I did it. I did it. Okay? Okay. In the laundry room, Cyril asks Ryan when they're going to meet with Gloria and those nice people again, but Ryan tells him that's not going to happen. Cyril asks whether or not they still hate him, but Ryan assures him that Cyril isn't the one that they hate. Sporting some claw marks on his cheek and a bruised lip from the fight with Gloria, almost mirroring her facial injuries, Ryan tells Cyril that killing Preston wasn't Cyril's fault, nor was what happened to Hamid Khan, Ryan saying that he was guilty of that too. Cyril reminisces about how their mother would take them to go to confession, and that by going into the big wooden box, God would wash away their sins as the scene closes on the brothers looking at the washing machine. Ryan meets with Ray to confess his sins, as we get a shot of Gloria returning to work to close out Act 3. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Today I lied. I told someone I did something that I didn't do. Why? Because it's what she wanted to hear because it's what she needs to know to make herself whole again. So, with regards to Ryan's behaviour in the previous episode and how that was going to get retconned somewhat, this is just that. Everything about Ryan's phone calls in that episode appeared to point to exactly what Gloria is feeling here. I spoke about how if you were watching the show for the first time, Ryan's actions made him one of the biggest villains on the show. However, those phone calls, which I don't think we ever find out who they were to or why Ryan was calling, were just a red herring to get to this point. It does make sense having watched it back, and Ryan's phone calls are just an unfortunate coincidence, 
but I personally feel that having Gloria raped was needlessly brutal. I feel as though you could have got the same reaction out of Gloria and still had Ryan be the one she accuses by having a mugging taking place. Having Gloria be the victim of rape, even though we don't see it on screen, or at least we haven't seen it yet, just pushes the whole thing to a level that it didn't need to go. It's not the first rape that we've had on the show, be it one that we see happen or one that's alluded to, nor will it be the last. So Act 4 gets underway with the inmates watching TV, our newsman giving an update as to the whereabouts of Miguel, that being that he's still missing. He also mentions about Boosmalis having escaped through the tunnel, as Boosmalis is brought back to M-City to a warm reception from the inmates, Ribido being the only person not so pleased to see his old friend. At lunch, Boosmalis describes how being free, even just for a few hours, was absolutely wonderful, despite having no money or overcoat and being out in the cold. He describes how he even did a little dance, getting up from the table to bust a few moves, and which ultimately proved to be his undoing in the end. The way in which he describes it as though the police caught him while he was doing his little dance, that's quite a funny visual. In actual fact, he was found outside the house of the actress who plays Miss Sally, Boos is saying that he was hoping to catch a glimpse of her in the flesh, and maybe even share a word or three. Ryan asks him what happened to Miguel, but Boos says that he was gone as soon as they got out of the tunnel. Nikolai talks about how the thing that he misses most about being free is being able to take a bath saying that he hates taking showers, which must really annoy the spirit of Richie Hanlon. He describes about being able to sit in the bath surrounded by the bubbles, describing it as Zame Chachielno, which is the Russian word for wonderful. Ryan asks Nikolai about wishing he had a rubber ducky with his bath, Nikolai not getting the joke, which leads into a conversation about the rubber duck being a product of capitalist imperialism, which doesn't really go anywhere, before Busmalis asks Ribado what he misses most about being free. Ribado, though, doesn't want to be part of the conversation, getting up from the table saying that he has nothing to say to Boosmalis. Cut to lights out where Boosmalis is begging for Ribado to talk to him, describing the silence as gruelling and asking why Ribado is mad at him. Ribado tells him that the fact that he doesn't know makes things all the worse, as Boosmalis asks whether or not it's because he tried to escape. Of course, the real reason is that Ribido is pissed off for not being made aware of the tunnel in the first place, and that Boosmalis didn't ask his supposed friend to go with him. Boosmalis confesses that he had his reasons for not letting Ribido in on the secret, the main one being that he felt as though Ribido might slow him down, and he says that he's sorry. Ribido tells Boosmalis that he's as vital as he's ever been, and that he's even killed someone in the meantime, something that Boosmalis has heard about and he gives a great fist pump celebration but Ribido says fuck you, and turns his head away to sulk some more. Another scene just lightening the mood somewhat before we get into the heavy final segment. I can see where Ribido is coming from having gotten the news that Boos Malis saw him as a liability. That will have been hard for him to take, especially after they dug the previous tunnel as a team. We get a news report detailing the upcoming execution of Shirley, set for dawn the next day as the inmates watch on. Bit of a continuity error here with this report as well, as it says that Shirley was convicted of drowning her eight-year-old daughter, whereas previously a daughter had only been four years old. According to this news report, Shirley is also the first woman to be executed by the state since 1841, which casts doubt over whether or not the show is actually set in New York State, which is the working assumption that I've had on the podcast. I talked previously about the execution of Martha M. Place at the end of the 1800s, but no women were executed in New York State in 1841, 
The only execution that took place that year was that of Samuel Johnson on July 6th. The last woman executed in the state prior to 1841 was Peggy Factor, who met her demise by hanging on March 18th, 1825 at the Arsenal lot on Broad Street in Clinton County. And there wasn't another woman executed in the state until Roxalana Druce in 1887, which we spoke about previously. Despite all of that, I'm sticking with New York as the state in which Oz is set, because the only other place I think it could possibly be would be New Jersey, where capital punishment was in effect from 1982 until 2007. Obviously though, Series 1 had the storyline of Devlin reintroducing the death penalty in the state, something which he wouldn't have needed to do if Oz was in New Jersey, so I'm still firmly of the belief that Oz is under the jurisdiction of New York State. Ryan removes his headphones saying that he can't listen to this shit anymore, as Jazz says that it depresses him. Chucky gives Adebisi some stick about having been in love with Shirley, but Adebisi insists that it was the other way around. Chico says that if he had to die by execution, his method of choice would be lethal injection, as Poet says that he'd go by having an overdose of heroin. Nikolai scuppers his dream somewhat by saying that the state aren't going to give him drugs, as Poet asked whether or not lethal injection counts as a drug, which is a fair point. Augustus also gives some background about how the doctor at the hanging execution has to decide where the knot should be so that the noose snaps the inmate's neck in the right place, something which we spoke about previously when discussing Roxolana Druce. Rebido reminisces about the day that he was executed and how terrified he was but that when he didn't die, he felt like a coward. Hearing him speak about being executed in the past tense seems really strange. It's not just the inmates in M-City talking about Shirley's execution, though, as Schillinger is listening to the report on a little radio, the news reporter apparently pulling double duty by appearing on both mediums, as well as meaning that Unit B's cells must have some kind of electrical socket in them, which surely can't be a good idea. Schillinger mentions to Robson about how he was hoping to see Shirley one last time, but mail deliveries to death row have been suspended until after the execution. He also says that Shirley was quite a gal, and that she reminded him of his late wife Arlene, and I think that's the first time that she's been mentioned by name on the show. But Manus walks by, sharing a stare with Schillinger as he does, as Timmy Kirk mentions about the time Shirley flashed him, claiming that she showed him her cunt. Timmy misremembering that somewhat, I'm fairly sure she only showed him her pubes, but why let a detail like that ruin a good story? I did quite like how McManus' ears seemed to prick up at the mention of someone's cunt though. McManus can hear sex talk coming from a mile away. Cut to a staff meeting where Leo wants to discuss the execution, which is Sister Pete's cue to try and leave. Pete saying that she agreed not to be amongst the protesters again, but that doesn't mean she has to stay and listen to the grim details. Leo needs Pete there, though, to let her know that Shirley has asked for Pete to collect her possessions after the execution, and she's very clear about it being only Sister Pete, as she doesn't want anyone else touching her stuff. Confused by the request, Pete asks what she's supposed to do with them, Shirley apparently saying that she can dispose of them as she wishes. Accepting Shirley's request, Pete asks to be allowed to leave, which Leo does eventually allow. Pete isn't the only one that Shirley is asking for favours, though, as Leo informs Ray that Shelley has asked for him to pray with her, Ray showing little enthusiasm. Cut to death row where Shelley is giving a sit-down interview to the female news reporter that we've seen a couple of times this series, still not totally sure of a name for her, which isn't helped by the actress going uncredited. She asks Shelley about having some final thoughts prior to the execution, Shelley answering that she's wondering why anyone cares what her thoughts actually are, 
and that no one cared when her husband was drunk and would beat her, something which wasn't touched upon last episode, assuming that she's referring to Zeke, nor did they care when her father-in-law raped her. The only time anyone cared what Shirley thought was when she killed her daughter, describing it as taking something horrific to get someone's attention, and now that she finally has that, she sees that her life then or now isn't worth shit. Throwing her hand to her forehead as if to say, oh, what a goof, Shirley says that swearing means that now the news can't use the footage, something backed up by the disgruntled look on the news team's faces. Interesting that Leo has allowed a news crew into the cell of a death row inmate with only one guard as backup. That could have gone horribly wrong in hindsight. Shirley, who by the way has a smashing blouse on, adds to her is that really true list of things by saying that her husband, who like I say I'm assuming is meant to be referring to Zeke, used to beat him when he was drunk, which would lend to him being a born-again Christian. But it's one of those things that you just don't know where the truth lies exactly with Shirley. This is the same woman who in the previous series thought she was going to give birth to the child of Satan. So that, along with the line about how her father-in-law raped her, which we've had two episodes in a row now, are probably best taken with a pinch of salt. The next morning, Ray, tightly clutching his Bible with his finger on a certain passage, meets with Leo in his office as the clock approaches 5am, the sound of a distant church bell ringing to signify that the moment has arrived, adding an eerie tone to proceedings. Down on death row, Shirley fixes a makeup by adding some red lipstick and saying good morning one last time to Moses. He asks how she's feeling as Shirley jokes about waking up with a crick in her neck, and that the hanging will take care of that. Nat awakens in a panic, asking what they've missed, as Shirley tells them that they haven't missed anything yet, and Nat can't quite get their head around how Mark is still asleep, saying that they have no sense of propriety. Speaking to each other through angled mirrors, Nat asks what Shirley had as her final meal, Shirley saying that she had a slim fast milkshake, because apparently a girl still needs to watch a figure even if she's a corpse. The siren sounds and Lepresti, Leo and Ray all make their way into the unit. Leo asks Shirley if she's ready as she steps out of a cell, Shirley saying that she is quite ready as Lepresti puts her in handcuffs. Shirley apologises to Ray for getting him up so early, and in one last act of humiliation, tells Leo that Lepresti has been coming to a cell every night and fucking her, which gets a giggle out of Moses. Lepresti calls that a lie, but Leo says that they'll speak later, as Lepresti mouths calling Shirley a bitch. Seeing as the subject of Shirley getting fucked has been broached, Ray asks if she wouldn't mind solving the mystery of who got her pregnant, asking whether or not Lepresti was the father. Shirley laughs at the idea of that to begin with, but also says that Lepresti wasn't working in the unit at that time, referring to it as Death Watch. She says that her lover was Satan in the form of a man, with Ray asking which man. Like any good magician, Shirley isn't willing to reveal such secrets, but she is willing to give Ray a hint, and whispers to him, neither rain nor snow. Of course, we covered that reference back in Series 3, Episode 5, US Mail, when Augustus mentioned the sunshine motto of the US Postal Service in his opening monologue. So if we were all to play detective for a moment and ask, who do we know that works with the mail in ours? It wouldn't take us long to decipher that Shirley is implying that Schillinger is the father of her child. That would certainly make sense with what Schillinger was saying with his fond description of Shirley and how she reminded him of his wife. But, as I alluded to a moment ago, can we take Shirley's word on that? We only ever saw Schillinger deliver mail to Shirley once, and in that scene they were quite flirty with each other. But Shirley was always locked away in a cell, 
so unless Schillinger fucked her through the bars at a moment where there wasn't any guards around, this could just be another example of Shelley playing some of their mind games, and in a way keeping a name alive within the walls of Oz once she's gone. I can't remember off the top of my head if there is any sort of follow-up to this, I'm guessing that there is, but my gut tells me that this is Shelley playing another one of her tricks for her own amusement more than anything else. Shelley says goodbye to her death row friends, Nat asking her to save a seat at the beauty salon, as Shelley is led out of the unit with Ray reading from Psalm 23. We get shots in M-City of Adebisi caressing a pocket watch, probably stolen from another inmate at some point, as well as in Unit B with Schillinger awake in his bed, and McManus watching the clock as Shelley continues to make her way to her execution. Sister Pete says a prayer with some rosary beads in her office as everyone arrives at the hangman's gallows which appears to have been erected at what is normally used for the gate entrance into M-City, and it has been built up so high that you can see the upper level railings of M-City in the background. Also, there's a room with visitors and witnesses to the execution that are behind the glass window, giving the impression that this is meant to be a different part of the prison entirely, and not just within the M-City entrance. Without pulling out the blueprints for the prison, this poses a lot of questions about why this scene was done this way. We've spoken before about the tight budget on which the show was made, and normally you would expect a hanging scene to take place outside. This is the only example of one happening indoors that I can remember seeing. It's rare that we ever go outside of Oz unless it's for somebody's crime flashback. We saw Miguel hiding in the shadows of the New York streets in the last episode, but I think the last time prior to that that we saw anybody in a location that wasn't Oz was when Ryan went to the hospital to have his operation when he was having his breast cancer scare. If the show was to go outside to film this execution, they'd have had to have hired a space on which to film, which in the state of New York is very expensive to do. So, next best thing, move it to an indoor location which you're already filming on, and dress up the set a little differently. However, in order for that to make sense, that would mean that this hangman's gallows, as well as the room housing the witnesses to the execution, have been built between Lights Out in M-City the previous night, and the time at which we're at now. Also, why have they gone full-blown medieval on these gallows? We're at the start of the 21st century, so why have we got something that looks like it's been lifted right out of the Middle Ages? You could argue that the show is trying to illustrate this method of execution as not only being barbaric, but also being somewhat archaic as well, but in logical terms, these gallows being here is absolutely ludicrous. As Shirley makes her way up the stairs and towards the noose, the realisation of what's about to happen finally hits her, and her entire demeanour changes as she begins to panic, saying that she's changed her mind and that she doesn't want to die this way. Leo tells her that it's too late, possibly not wanting the construction crew's work to go to waste, as Shirley pushes her way past Ray and tries to escape down the stairs. Lepresti scoops her off her feet and marches her back into position as guards bind Shirley's feet. Shirley begs for intervention from a higher power as Lepresti takes great joy in placing the hood over Shirley's head before he is handed the noose to tie into position. Ray looks on terrified, gripping his Bible so tight that it bends, as Shirley continues to beg for forgiveness, saying that she's sorry for everything that she's done as Leo gives the order to have the lever pulled. Shirley falls through the trapdoor and we get the sound of her neck cracking cutting back to death row at the moment of impact as Moses senses a great disturbance in the force, with Nat struggling to fight back the tears. Pete gathers Shirley's possessions as requested and starts to make her way out of the unit. 
Just as she leaves, though, Mark asks her if he can have Shirley's mirror, and tells Pete that he's the next one to die. With her opposition to capital punishment, Pete is also aware of who the next person to die is, and we close on Mark looking at his own reflection, as Augustus details the final act of mercy and even speaks a little Greek as we close out the episode. Change my mind. I don't want to die. It's too late. No, 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 one to die, you know. Yes, I know. The final act of mercy, to bury the dead, to pray for the dead and the living. We are merciful, not just for humanitarian reasons. We are merciful because we ourselves want to be saved. God expects mercy from us. God demands it. And how much mercy does he show us? Kyrie eleison. That means, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Please. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 4, Works of Mercy. Another solid episode from start to finish this one. The show is starting to find its feet again after a lackluster series opener, and a particular poor segment last episode involving Ryan and Gloria. That story has been salvaged somewhat, with this new development of Ryan taking the blame for something which Sister Pete thinks he has no involvement with. The face-to-face between Gloria and Ryan was perhaps still a little too close to soap opera levels of acting for my liking, so I'd struggle to say that what we had here was good, but I do think that it was at least an improvement on the previous episode. There are some that rate that scene as one of the best on the show, which I just don't agree with at all. I think that there are scenes from past episodes and even future episodes that are much better than this in terms of how they're written and how they're acted. But overall, it wasn't terrible. The feud between Beecher and Schillinger continues to soldier on, with Schillinger seizing the upper hand, so to speak, and sending Beecher right back to his dark place. The shimmering light for Beecher is that he at least has Keller back in M-City to lend some support and he also has Saeed watching from a distance, although he is still navigating his own problems with being accepted back within the Muslim group. McManus returning to Oz after being gone for only one episode was perhaps a little too rushed, but he was only in a supporting role and didn't outstay his welcome. While we're talking about things that may have seemed a little rushed, the release of Jason Kramer seemed to just come out of nowhere, 
almost as if they weren't too sure about how to end that particular storyline. Representing Jason in a retrial that he knows he's going to lose anyway, because Saeed knows that Jason is guilty, doesn't further Saeed's story, so having Jason go free was the only way that it could really cause any sort of disruption or loss in Saeed. In an ideal world, perhaps we could have seen Saeed and Jason preparing for court over a couple more episodes, but as will become clear as we head towards the end of this series, Saeed's story is heading in a different direction, which we'll talk about in due course. While his appearance as Cardinal Abgot was perfectly adequate, the presence of Gavin McLeod seems to signify that we are firmly in the special guest star period of the show as well. Obviously, we've had guest stars on the show before, going all the way back to Eric Roberts in the early days of Series 1, but it's becoming quite noticeable now that the show seems to be shoehorning guests into a role just to say that they were on the show. Sometimes they work, like with Gavin McLeod and the debuting David Johansson in this episode, and sometimes they don't. There's a particular guest spot that I'm looking forward to talking about in Series 5 that's particularly ropey, but more on that another time. Did they need to bring in Gavin McLeod to play the Cardinal? Probably not, but at the same time it didn't do any harm having him there either, and like I say, Gavin McLeod was fine, and again, didn't outstay his welcome. This episode though does have two pivotal moments on the show, those being the introduction of fan favourite Martin Quant, and the execution of Shirley Bellinger, bringing the female inmate population of Oz crashing back down to zero. While this was very much an introduction to the character of Quans, it's easy to see why he's so well remembered. He just oozes a badass aura from the moment he appears on screen. While Shirley's execution brings with it a memorable, if not a little nonsensical moment in terms of its method. While her panicked state right at the end snapped her out of this remorseless, uncaring persona that she had portrayed during her time on the show. This episode also marks the midway point of the show as a whole meaning that we're 50% of the way through this podcast run. So 28 episodes down, 28 to go, although I'm sure there will be a few more bonus episodes to fit in along the way. Get the fuck out of my office. As we're in episode 4 of series 4, it's perhaps only fitting that we have four deleted scenes to talk about. The first scene is down in the gym, where Timmy Kirk approaches Beecher, saying that it sucks what happened to Beecher's children, as he describes kidnappers as the lowest form of life saying that they're even worse than paedophiles, which is a... well, let's just say that's open to debate. Beecher isn't in the mood to talk and moves across to another weight machine, as Timmy says that he's heard that Keller has been released from the hospital, and says, boy, that Keller sure is a crazy cat, Timmy having looked up Keller's record at some point, mentioning his convictions of armed robbery and assault, but that Keller is also the prime suspect in a number of murders of homosexual men, as well as being arrested but not convicted of a kidnapping charge. Beecher asks Timmy why he's telling him this, Timmy saying that he knows about them being lovers, and that they had a big falling out prior to Keller being shot, and that it got him thinking that Keller has a motive. Beecher however says that despite that, Keller didn't have the opportunity due to being in the hospital, but Timmy says that Keller knows people on the outside as the scene ends. The second scene sees Saeed and Jason meet up in the cafeteria, Jason saying that he leaves tomorrow, and that he'll likely never see Saeed again. He tells Saeed, thank you for getting my balls ruined, or at least that's what it sounds like he says, and offers a handshake, but Saeed stands up and looks Jason in the eye. He asks Jason, in the name of Allah, don't kill anyone else, as Jason says that he won't, so long as he can help it. Having enough of Jason's constant joking, Saeed grabs him by the scruff of the neck, but Jason retaliates with a headbutt, 
as a guard runs in to break them up. It's all over very quickly as Jason is led away telling Saeed see you later cause, as some of the other inmates give Saeed some light jeers. Scene 3 sees Sister Pete going to talk with Leo in his office. As Pete enters, Leo starts to give out about his parking space having been stolen by one of the death penalty protesters, calling them Pete's friends. So if she's come to talk about Shirley's execution, he isn't in the mood. Pete, however, isn't there to discuss Shirley and motions that she's more concerned about Mo Bay and that she's heard through the grapevine of a rehab group that Mo Bay has been developing a heroin problem. Obviously, this puts Leo between a rock and a hard place and he swears Pete to secrecy as he asks Mo Bay to join them. Leo introduces Sister Pete to Detective John Basil, who drops character for a moment wondering what Leo is doing blowing his cover. Mo Bay, the name I'm sticking with for ease, says that anything that she's heard about him doing drugs, he's just faking it to get in with gangs, Pete reckoning that he must be very convincing. Mobe apologises for causing Pete any concern, Pete saying that she was concerned before, but she's worried now, and tells Mobe to be careful, the scene closing with him saying that no one wants to walk out of Oz alive more than he does. The final scene sees Cyril being summoned to Quern's office, Quern's questioning Cyril about what he was looking for, Cyril, like a school kid caught in a lie, says that he wasn't looking for anything, as we hear Ryan storming up the stairs before being held back by a guard, but Quern sees him and allows Ryan to enter. Ryan goes to talk, but Cyril jumps out of his seat, Ryan pushing him back down so as to not arouse suspicion. Quern starts to question Ryan about what Cyril was looking for as Ryan asks what Cyril has said, but Quern wants to hear it from Ryan, seeing whether or not their stories line up. Ryan pulls an easter egg out of the pocket of his hoodie and gives it to Quern's, mentioning that he and Cyril used to love easter egg hunts as children. Quern's isn't buying it though, seeing as they're nowhere close to easter, Ryan replying in whispered tones with, well yeah, but he doesn't know that. Quern's allows them both to leave, although he probably still isn't buying the story, and Ryan says that Quern's can keep the egg as a welcoming present to close the scene. All of these scenes I can understand why they were cut, the information from Timmy to Beecher being moved to the scene with Special Agent Taylor and Beecher's parents, it works better as Beecher already knows that information about Keller because he has access to the files working in Sister Pete's office. Having it come out in the scene that we got rather than earlier on with Timmy means that Beecher has to confront the situation head on rather than being given time to prepare his reaction beforehand. It also means that he has to confess his changing sexuality to his devout parents, giving him a whole new set of potential problems to face going forward. The scene between Saeed and Jason just wasn't needed. Having Jason just leave Oz without saying thank you to Saeed for everything just makes Jason look like a bigger dick than he was when he was joking after Stransky's confession. He doesn't care about what Saeed did for him, he's free and that's all that matters. How it happened and how anyone feels after the fact is irrelevant to him. Similarly, the scene between Pete, Leo and Mobey just wasn't needed at all. Alright, we get it, Mobey isn't meant to be taking drugs as an undercover cop. You've told us plenty of times now. Having said that, I did quite like Leo getting annoyed about losing his parking space. That's something that we can all identify with. And it also shows how much he respects Sister Pete by allowing her to be the only other person that knows about Mobey being undercover. The last scene between the O'Reillys and Querns, that may be the best out of the bunch as it was a rare moment where it looked as though Cyril was having to fend for himself a little 
but it was perhaps a little too light-hearted in tone and a bit early for your new badass unit manager to be used for a touch of comic relief. Other than Leo's parking woes, no real reason for these to be in the show, so yeah, the right choice to cut them. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Catherine Irby, aka Shirley Bellinger. After leaving Oz, Catherine appeared in the TV movie The Runaway in 2000, while in 2001 she appeared in the movie Speaking of Sex, starring alongside James Spader, and which also featured Oz alumni Paul Schulz. Also in 2001, Catherine landed possibly her most famous role, appearing as Alexandra Eames on Law & Order Criminal Intent for a total of 144 episodes over the course of 10 seasons. In 2003, Catherine and Terry Kinney would have their second child together, a son named Carson. In 2006, Catherine and Terry would file for divorce, although they have remained friends. Following the conclusion of Law & Order Criminal Intent in 2011, Catherine would reprise her role as Alexandra Eames in two episodes of Law & Order Special Victims Unit in 2012 and 2013, although she didn't appear with Christopher Maloney in those episodes as he had left the show by that point. Catherine would once again appear as a Law & Order persona in 2014, this time in a parody fashion on an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Having last appeared on the Broadway stage in 1995, Catherine would return to the stage in 2016, appearing in The Father along with Frank Langella at the Samuel J. Friedman Theatre. In 2017, Catherine appeared in recurring roles on The Sinner on USA Network and How to Get Away with Murder on ABC, while in 2018 she appeared in the films Alex Strangelove and Assassination Nation. In 2019, Catherine, as well as a number of fellow Oz alumni, appeared in a recurring role in City on a Hill, with her most recent credit coming in 2021 for two episodes of The Blacklist, reuniting with James Spader. At the time of recording, Catherine's latest credits are listed as being for the film The Good House, as well as the short film The Bond, both listed as being in post-production. This episode also sees the final appearances of Jason Kramer and Wendy Schultz, played by Robert T. Berg and Dana Reeve, respectively. After leaving Oz, Robert has appeared in minor roles in shows such as The Sopranos, Ed, Whoopi and All's Fair, as well as providing voiceover work on a number of video games, including Red Dead Revolver in 2004, as well as Grand Theft Auto 4, appearing in The Ballad of Tony Gay Expansion Pack in 2009, Red Dead Redemption in 2010, and 2014's Grand Theft Auto 5. Having first appeared on the show in 1999 in a different role, Robert returned to Guiding Light in 2005 as AC Mallet, appearing for 344 episodes until 2009. In 2014, Robert had a recurring role in Wallflowers, appearing as the character Fred, while in 2016 he acted as a narrator on the documentary series NASCAR The Rise of American Speed. Along with appearances on shows such as Homeland, Bull, House of Cards and Chicago Fire, reuniting with Oz co-star Eamon Walker, Robert's most recent credits are for the 2021 films Naked Singularity and En Suite. At the time of recording, Robert's latest credits include the film Night Moves and the short film Babs, both listed as being in pre-production. After a time here on Oz, Dana only acted in a small number of roles, including an episode of Law & Order Criminal Intent in 2001, while in 2003 she provided voiceover work for the documentary series Freedom, A History of Us. Dana's husband Christopher passed away in October 2004, and ten months later Dana was diagnosed with lung cancer despite having never smoked. 
Despite her diagnosis, Dana appeared in a minor role in the 2004 TV movie The Brooke Ellison Story, and in 2005 was named Mother of the Year by the American Cancer Association. In her final public appearance on January 12, 2006, Dana sang at Madison Square Garden at the Jersey retirement ceremony of New York Rangers hockey player Mark Messier, singing the Carole King song, Now and Forever. Dana Reeve passed away on March 6, 2006 at the age of 44. At Madison Square Garden on the night of Dana's death, the New York Rangers paid tribute to Dana prior to their game against the Carolina Hurricanes by playing a recording of Dana singing the national anthem. Dana's final acting role was for the animated movie Everyone's Hero, released posthumously and dedicated to both hers and Christopher's memory. Also dedicated to the Reeves' memory was the 16th episode of the 5th season of Smallville, the episode being the first broadcast following Dana's passing. The Oz One and Done Club gained itself three new members in this episode as well, those being Michael Patrick McCaffrey as Jesus, as well as the guest starring Richard Bright as Detective Robert Stransky, and Gavin McLeod as Cardinal Francis Abgott. Post-Oz, Michael only appeared in a number of minor acting roles, his final credit coming in 2015 for the short film Aleppo, while in 2019 he made his writing debut, writing the Barry Anderson-directed movie The Soviet Sleep Experiment. Following his appearance on Oz, Richard Bright only appeared in a handful of roles, partly due to ill health. In 2002, he appeared as Frank Creasy during the fourth season of The Sopranos, as well as making his fourth appearance on Law & Order. Richard would also appear on fellow Law & Order shows Criminal Intent and Special Victims Unit in 2002 and 2005, respectively. On February 18, 2006, at the age of 68, Richard was tragically killed in an accident with a tour bus while crossing the road in New York's Upper West Side. His final acting role for the movie Day on Fire was released posthumously in August the following year. Gavin McLeod continued to appear mainly in guest-starring roles, including appearances on King of Queens, Jag, Touched by an Angel, That 70s Show, and That Sweet Life on Deck, with his most recent TV credit coming in The Comeback Kids in 2014. Away from TV, Gavin achieved minor viral video success appearing in Safety Old School Style, a safety video for Air New Zealand which has been viewed on YouTube nearly 3 million times as well as appearing on a number of occasions at the Rock Church in Anaheim, California following his conversion to Christianity. In 2014, Gavin was honoured with a star on the Walk of Stars in Palm Springs, California, and would reunite with a number of his Love Boat co-stars the following year to appear in the Rose Parade in Pasadena, California. In 2017, Gavin returned to the theatre stage, starring in Happy Hour at the Coachella Valley Repertory Theatre in Rancho Mirage, California. Gavin was listed to play Father Carrigan in the movie Jimmy's Cafe, but before filming commenced, Gavin McLeod passed away at the age of 90 on May 29, 2021 at his home in Palm Desert, California, following a period of ill health. My episode MVP was really difficult to call because it could have quite easily gone to three people. Leo continues to look out for Mo Bay and Clayton as best as he can while also having Devlin breathing down his neck regarding the campaign. He's also looking out for McManus by giving him another shot at running a unit, even if it isn't the one that McManus wants. After a super cool walk to the mic and having given a short but firm speech, Martin Quenz has drawn his line in the sand and seems to be welcoming all comers to try and take him on in what is possibly the best introduction to any character on the show so far. 
the terms that he's laid out for Adebisi have left things open for potential chaos to ensue. A pressure which has previously been close to bringing Oz to its knees, but maybe it's the kind of pressure that only a person like Quern's can handle. However, I'm going to give the award to Shirley Bellinger for the legacy that she leaves behind following her execution. Ever since coming to Oz, she's acted as a siren for a number of inmates with her charms, for lack of a better term, as well as certain members of staff. While her claims of Satan being a baby's daddy as well as a highly questionable rape accusation against a former father-in-law may leave more questions than answers, Shirley knew that she had complete control of her surroundings, even managing to find the time to throw Lepresti under the bus for their series of late-night rendezvous, right up until the time it was taken away from her in a final moment. It was only at that time that she showed any kind of weakness, attempting at first to run away, before begging God to save her from her fate. Her hanging taking place on a medieval-style gallows may have been a tad over the top, but very few characters get the same level of send-off on the show, and her absence is felt instantly not only by Adebisi in M-City and Schillinger in Unit B, but most noticeably on death row amongst her fellow inmates Moses and Nat. Her ex-husband Zeke called Shirley infamous, and her legacy will live on within the walls of Oz long after she's gone, so for those reasons, Shirley Bellinger gets the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you'll also find all of the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a 5-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, if only I had a brain, I'd be able to take a look at Series 4, Episode 5, Grey Matter where Quenz and Murphy butt heads over the changes in M-City, Rebido embraces his change in attitude while Ryan and Nikolai continue the battle over the prestigious cell phone, and Beecher and Keller's relationship takes another dramatic turn. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. Oh, I could tell you why the ocean.